welcome to you all. How are you doing? Make a kind of face indicative of the mood. Okay, I see some actual <laughs> thumbs up. Randy's maybe slightly ironic chuckle. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good. Do it while we talk too. It's really helpful to just see the you know see how it's going. Um, please emote. Yeah. Right. That's right. You're like our behavioral modification, yes. you know, kind of system where we were like, ah, this is looking a little flat. I better exit this territory. Keep uh, Matthew on track. Please. Yeah. 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 Keep Matthew on track. Um, yeah. So, uh, so great to, uh, great to be with you. And, um, yeah, hello to to uh, folks, uh, you know, on the record. Yeah, a lot of people have watched the recording. And um, yeah, and hello to, uh, I guess, to the AIs that may scrape this presentation. You know, it would be an honor. It would be an honor. You know, the part. Yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, yeah, so this is a, a benefit event for, for Spirit Rock and m money goes not to Randy and I were donating that to, to Spirit Rock. And so thank you for your support. It's always easier to ask for uh, donations when it's not going to me seems a little conflict of interest e you know and so uh anyway if you're like employee number four at nvidia the bill is due you know it's now <laughs> no no i'm teasing uh but uh you know grateful for your uh your support of of uh spare rock so um so for just for the, the format, um, I'm, we're going to sit for a few minutes. I'll kind of uh, offer some, some, some comments and historical context and, uh, and then turn it over to, uh, to my uh, dear friend, Randy Rendema, um, who will, who is, uh, you know, the, uh, yeah, kind of subject uh, content expert here. And so um and then open it for uh, for discussion dialogue, and so um, uh, yeah, let's let's uh, let's sit, let's sit, because you know it's like, well, you know, this is actually um, quite evocative material when you get down to it, and um, there's a lot uh, actually at stake, and it's worth uh, establishing some measure of of um, tranquility, stability, clarity as we engage with these questions. So um, yeah, find a posture, and we'll just sit for five minutes, but uh, just find a posture that feels sustainable. The Buddha said that through attention, phenomena come into being. So what's useful to bring into being now 
and what's skillful to put down. Maybe the body, your body, the breathing body. Maybe the sense of gravity of earth holding you fast. with a relaxed mind, gently marshal our attention in ways that feel skillful.
Okay, thank you. It's nice to uh, nice to sit with you. Um, yeah, yeah, very nice. It's kind of yeah, just sangha, the jewel of sangha. Um, so, so I think it was about five years ago. Uh, Randy and I did a half day program at Spirit Rock. Um, called um, technology as an existential threat to mindfulness. We usually have kind of sedate titles, you know, but this was like, okay, let's, let's amp this up a little, you know? And, um, and that was a response primarily to the ways that, um, that our attention has been relentlessly monetized you know, the Buddha was a, a connoisseur of attention, right? And, and really, so much of the Buddhist path is cataloging the ways that attention can lead to a tormented life or towards freedom. And uh, we said then, you know, that um, while our our um, our brain is protected by a skull and a membrane. It is an open system. It is an open system, and our our biology, our evolved biology, is adaptive in many ways, but encodes certain vulnerabilities that can be exploited. And uh, a lot of the kind of infrastructure around technology pushes those buttons, leveraging vulnerabilities to, to generate uh, engagement and revenue. And, um, and it's almost like our technological environment, like um, perfectly exploits the first noble truth. You know, it said like that the, the um, defining characteristic of this realm, samsara is like the urge to fix the urge to fix right we all know how deep that impulse runs the persistent sense that something could always get a little better you know this talk could be better that was the first joke mute yourself randy you can't be cackling in the background no, it's like something could always get better, right? Always. And we sense that kind of seed of dissatisfaction. And then we reach for something, right? And in the past, we just like reach for into our thoughts and like, okay, I'll just fantasize about this or imagine this, you know, threat being eradicated or whatever, you know, it's, we would just reach into that, you know? And, um, but now we have a supercomputer in our pocket, you know, and so can just Google the next thing that careens into our minds, right? And we're on Zoom. This doesn't, you know, that fact does not elude us, of course, right? And technology's done uh, a million beautiful things, but it, it has also largely function to scale greed, hatred, and delusion. And we are like inheriting a society where 
it is very easy to scale the sources of suffering within us. And so that was five years ago, and here we are now. And technology exponentially more powerful and um, and becoming more so literally each day. And, uh, and just to, as a kind of, you know, my own kind of personal disclosure, I'm an aversion type of the greed, hate, delusion. You know, I am an aver, I'm the aversion hate type, which is sort of sometimes characterized as like the fear type. I think Randy probably is too, you know, Carlita, I don't think Carlita is an aversion type, but I'm not, you know, it doesn't <laughs> grasp greed, greed. Okay. we got two aversion and a greed. So, um, I feel like I do both, but anyway, okay. Yeah. Yeah. We worse. all, we all have our, you know, our, <laughs> our majors and minors, um, yeah. but, uh, yeah. Right. So it's like, okay, that feels like an appropriate self-disclosure. So I'm like, I might just temperamentally, I'm attuned to threat, you know, and just like, and so that's in the mix here. Right. But it's like, I don't know. People who know a lot more than me tend to be more concerned. And I know very little about this, but people who, the more people know, the more concerned they are. That's been my experience in talking with experts. And, and it's not, you know, unreasonable to fear greed, hate, and delusion, the scaling of it, the potency of it, its capacity to, in, um, to catalyze suffering. And so the effects of, of AI are, are sort of like, yeah, self-emergent and maybe difficult to predict the range of, of impacts. <clears throat> but um, it, it um, does, you know, represent, technology does represent a kind of existential risk, right? This is a, uh, from the precipice, um, Toby Ord <clears throat> says, um, the threats to humanity and how we address them define our time. The advent of nuclear weapons posed a real risk of human extinction in the 20th century with the continued acceleration of technology and without serious efforts to protect humanity. There's strong reason to believe that the risk will be higher this century and increasing with each century that technological progress continues. Because these human-generated risks outstrip all natural risks combined, they set the clock on how long humanity has to pull back from the brink. I'm not claiming that extinction is the inevitable conclusion of scientific progress, or even the most likely outcome. What I am claiming is that there's been a robust trend towards increases in the power of humanity, which has reached a point where we pose a serious risk to our own existence. Goes on to say, recognizing that people matter equally wherever they are in time is a crucial next step in the ongoing story of humanity's moral progress. Our own generation is but one page in much longer history, and our most important role may be how we shape or fail to shape that story. Recognizing that people matter equally wherever they are in time 
is a crucial next step in humanity's moral evolution, moral progress. So, um, every generation feels like they're special, you know, and feels like they're the inflection point of, you know, it's like everyone always thinks that. And maybe that's just the grandiosity of every generation. You know, it's us, it's us. It might be us, you know, it actually might be. And so we felt kind of motivated to bring this to, uh, to Spare Rock. And why? Well, because um, this is ultimately about suffering and its alleviation. And this is about suffering on large scales. And so this is partially a kind of um, public service announcement in a way. Um, there's a lot of ways we could format this kind of conversation. Um, but uh, we recognize that technology has become deeply intermingled with our minds. Our minds are not our own, you know, they're not our own. And they are um, increasingly being occupied, you know, this open system of our brain occupied by technology. And so the Dharma can help us uh, in a number of ways. It's obviously suffering is a multidisciplinary problem. This is not just a Dharma problem, but, but Dharma is in an interesting position where it can help actually diagnose the problem, the kind of risks that we face, the forces that are operating, how greed, hatred, and delusion actually function, what their effects are likely to be, even if there are some people have very, you know, wholesome intentions in this sphere, uh, the forces of greed, hatred, delusion, you know, are very potent, very potent. And so um, Dharma is also help in some ways in, in mitigating risk and adaptation, AI's impacts on, on the coming generations. And, um, and Dharma practice itself, Dharma practice teaching is likely to experience significant kind of impacts, our own little niche world of, of, uh, of insight meditation or something like this is, is likely to, you know, uh, you know, how, how long before the Dharma talks generated by AI are like are, uh, vastly better than anything I could ever do. And so, um, yeah, so uh, it feels like um, kind of, yeah, a little sober and tender, you know, kind of moment for me and uh, excited to have, have uh, Randy here, a fellow, you know, we both sit on the, the board at Spirit Rock and uh, he's one of the, the co-founders of Center for Humane Technology, which is like, I remember when you were you guys were deliberating about uh, the name, you know, what to name it, and you picked very well Center for Humane Technology. Um, so uh, I'll turn it over to uh, to you, uh, Randy, sure. and uh, share, and uh, then we'll we'll have some time for uh, to explore together. Cool. Thank you. Great intro, Matthew. Um, really helpful to kind of frame everything. Uh, I'd add a, just a few comments on that. I think 
it's interesting the, the diagnosis that Buddhism offers has been accurate for 2,500 plus years. It's like not many things have ever been accurate for that long. Uh, and it continues to hold it really well for all of these new technologies. And so uh, that's part of why we are speaking about it here is that we actually have something very valuable to offer in these moments um, from this community, right? This community, these practices, this understanding of the world is really valuable when we could have our minds spinning and not knowing what how to interpret what's happening. So hopefully today will help with that. Um, one of the big issues also is the, you know, Matthew was talking about every generation, like, is it different or whatever, right? Like, how do you know? Um, every generation thinks this is this is the time and, and we are unique or whatever. But one of the key things that is different is the level of extraction, right? When you extract beyond what is sustainable, beyond what can be generated, you have a very different set of problems than if you are operating below that threshold. And now we are exceeding the physiology, right? The attention, the body, the nervous system, relationships, functioning of democracy, and our natural ecosystems, and putting too much CO2 in the environment, in the, in the air, right? So all of these things, um, we have exceeded boundary after boundary. And speaking of supercomputer in the pocket, right? So we were, first we were at, megaflops, right? Millions of flops, then gigaflops and teraflops. So what is a supercomputer? It used to be like a teraflop was a lot. Now it's petaflops and exaflops, right? Which are like another thousand and another thousand. Um, that's where we are. And so it's remarkable, but that is giving us the fuel and the ability to over extract at scales that are like wildly out of control. So that's I would say that's a big thing of, of what's different this time. Um, personally, I'm not as worried about sort of human extinction or whatever. I mean, you know, life, the universe is a very long time scale, but there's a lot of suffering. And I think orienting towards that and saying, well, what can we do to mitigate that uh, is really helpful. So that said, um, I wanted to share, uh, do a quick presentation just to introduce you to AI, because I know a lot of people here are actually not that familiar, right? You're just like, well, what is all this? Um, so before we have Q&A and we kind of get into a nice discussion and talk about the Dharmic aspects, let's just, just do a little background. So here we go. First of all, um, there's a presentation called The AI Dilemma that my co-founders Tristan Harris and Isa Raskin have given. It's on YouTube. We'll, we'll put the links in very well worth watching. Uh, I just want to make sure the settings are good. Yeah. Um, and it's about, uh, it's about an hour long, but it will really walk you through this whole thing in a, in a deeper way than we have time for today. Um, so yeah, check it out. But this is, this is a quick intro. Oh, okay. So first chat GPT, right? Everyone's heard of chat GPT. And um, we know, right, it, this is kind of the basic thing that, that brought all of this AI conversation to the, to the world, right, in, in some sense, the most recent version. Um, it's useful for, you know, stories, poems, songs, right, all of these things that you may have heard, right, and it can be, can be really helpful for some of the work that you're doing. Um, but it's, we're talking about so much more than this. So this is the starting point. Then we have imagery. 
like photorealistic imagery, right? This is from uh, Midjourney, which is one of the kind of the leading AI image generation tools. And you can see the rapid improvement, right? This is over one year from version one to version five, the quality um, of the image that's generated in response to this prompt, right? Tired old man with a large gray beard, black and white photography. This is amazing, right? It's an amazing amount of advancement in a very short time. And this is one of the recurring themes you'll see with, with AI. Um, because it's built on these semiconductors that are advancing exponentially and these giant clusters of machines right, that can be networked, and those are growing roughly exponentially. The data that it's being trained on is being incre increased exponentially, and the algorithms that it actually runs, right, the, the actual um, way of running the neural networks is also improving. So all those together, you get something like 10x per year, right? Which is a kind of a crazy rate of improvement. Um, other examples of like kind of crazy images from crazy prompts, right? They're just beautiful. Um, tons of examples of this. And you may have seen a lot of these already. Uh, OpenAI just announced Dolly 3. This is, I think, just yesterday. And here's an example where um, it's generating an image based on very specific prompts, you can see the kinds of words that are being given to the, the, the kind of prompt detail that's being given, and it's able to do that. It's able to successfully generate these. So here's an example of uh, audio, right? So there's been, um, there are techniques that can take just three seconds of audio and then synthesize many, many seconds after that. So in this, in these examples, the first three seconds were provided, and the subsequent part of the clip after the dotted line is all synthesized. Our first impressions of people are, in nine cases out of ten, mere spectacle reflections of the actuality of things. You can't really notice but the scene. they are impressions of something different and more... So again, quite completely seamless, right? I, I can't, you know, I'm I'm pretty well trained in these things and I can't say I can hear anything um anything distinguishing. Our, our first impressions of people are in not Okay, here's another example. So this is um filters, right? So these are these are filters that you add when you're streaming, for example, and it analyzes your face, it analyzes the video in real time and modifies your face. I can't believe this is a filter. The fact that this is what filters have evolved into is actually crazy to me. I grew up with the dog filter on Snapchat, and now this, this filter gave me lip fillers. This is what I look like in real life. Are you, are you kidding me? So you can see, and you can start to imagine the kinds of effects that this would have, right, on people, especially young people. There's so many aspects to it, but just one, one aspect is, if you get used to appearing like this, you know, this kind of filtered version when you interact with people, and then when the filter is off, you feel uncomfortable, right? You, like in real life, when you go walking around, you would feel very kind of unprotected, very vulnerable. So huge issues with that. I can't believe this, I believe this is... This. Okay. Um, one other clip I wanted to show, it doesn't embed, so I just got to play it here. But check this out. 
Sam Altman did this in English. This was an English testimony to Congress, and this is just modified to speak Spanish, which he La tecnología, know. la industria y al mundo. Creo que eso podría suceder de varias formas. Por eso empezamos la empresa. Es una gran parte de por qué estoy aquí hoy y hemos podido pasar tiempo contigo. Si esta so, you get the idea. The, the issue here is um, the implications for knowing what's real and not real, right? So we call sense making, right? The ability to make sense of the world, the ability to provide video evidence or audio evidence or even photo evidence. All of this stuff, it starts to break down, right? When you can produce this kind of realistic imagery, realistic videos and audio, um, it has a lot of consequences for how our our society functions and how trust functions and how we know what's, what's true or false or how we defend ourselves if we're accused of something, right? Or how, how we prove that someone else did something wrong. Um, so these are all kind of big challenges that are coming now as a result of the technology. So again, back to that frame of exceeding boundaries, exceeding our ability to know what is true or not true, exceeding our comprehension, our senses, and no amount of mindfulness will help you to discern this kind of like factual thing, right? You can be aware, but knowing whether a video is true or false is just beyond that, that realm. You just can't know. So that's generative AI. And there's also this ability to do kind of cognitive function, right? So this generation of AI is now able to do quite well on different types of exams. So you can see, you know, legal exams and medical exams, it's scoring pretty well. And that has now consequences for jobs, right? And um, jobs and meaning and all kinds of things that, that humans are good at. Um, it used to be that we thought, okay, we've got creativity, okay, we'll always have creativity. But it turns out, as you saw in the previous slides, art, music, those kinds of things, uh, writing, art, music are, are some of the easiest ones for AI to do very well. And then there's these kind of cognitive capacities, even computer coding, right? Another one that people always thought, oh, that would be like really hard. Um, a lot of code right now is AI assisted already, especially at the high end. Like if you look at a place like Tesla or at OpenAI, there's a lot of assistance um, from AI to write the code. There is assistance from AI to design the chips that it's running on. So there's this kind of recursive um, function right, that is happening to increase the capacity at a, at a faster, more exponential scale all the time. On top of this, there, there are hundreds of plugins available. There are what's called APIs. That's just a, it's a way of talking to the, the um, AI engine and saying, hey, can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? And so now you can plug into all kinds of external apps. So if you imagine um, connecting to TaskRabbit or something like that, you can make people in the world do things, right, via an AI for you. Uh, you can, you know, there's simple examples like OpenTable, Reserver, Reserve something, uh, Instacart, get your groceries. But something like TaskRabbit opens up a more general function that you can just start actuating things in the world through these technologies, which, as you can imagine, like good in some ways, problematic in other ways. Uh, and this also supercharges the economic system, right? So anything that was already operating beyond those kinds of limits, like over-extractive, is now super over-extractive, right? All the friction goes away. 
So like Instacart, for example, you get more and more groceries were delivered at your door that could be useful, but also in a lot of ways, like when we get packaged items, it can be more wasteful of resources, more wasteful of packaging. There's just simple examples, but everything has these impacts. And again, when we reduce the friction, it, it ladders up in a, in a big way. And all of this isn't just about generative AI, right? It's about all of these other applications. So think about autonomous driving, think about protein folding, think about these kinds of robots, right? The Boston Dynamics robots, which can do very dynamic things. It can do gymnastics. It can, they can jump, they can, they can do um, scary things. And even things like computer games where you can apply those lessons and the training process to other um, applications in, in real life. Um, I just want to mention that these models do have problems. They do hallucinate. So they are not, they're very good at a lot of things, but when they make mistakes, they can be horrible. Um, and when it goes off the rails, it'll, it'll basically tell you false information, um, generate, uh, this becomes very problematic when we start to rely on it more. Uh, once in a while, it's completely wrong, but you don't know exactly when. And you can see how that would be very problematic, not just if you're asking simple questions like in the chat GPT, but if it's integrated into medicine or law, right? You start to have really, really big consequences or let's say like uh, stock markets or something like that. Um, one concept I want to introduce is the idea of most people, right? When you think of a computer program, you would, we used to think of something like this. It's like a flowchart, right? You, you say, okay, um, should I approve this person or reject this person for a loan? And you have a sequence of decision points. And based on those decision points, you get to outcomes. So these kind of green or orange uh, outcomes. Uh, these models are different, right? So it doesn't look like this, it looks more like this. Uh, it simulates the neurons in your brain. So we have a bunch of um, neurons and they're connected just like in our brain. And there's a different number assigned to that connection weight, right? So just like in our brain, some connections are stronger. If they're practiced more often, they become stronger and other connections are weaker. And this is why this is the whole idea of brain plasticity or neuroplasticity and meditation training, right? That there's this training process that changes the neurons and the connections between them. Um, so this is kind of mimicking that idea. But the problem is this ends up more like a black box because it's very hard to understand how it works. And the real neural network starts to look more like this. It has all these different layers, right? And each layer understands different aspects of, of the training. Um, so for a text model, some layers might understand basic sentence structure. Some layers might understand syntax and semantics. And some layers might understand kind of the zoomed out version. And so there's this giant training process. You, you run, you know, gigabytes or terabytes of data through the, through the, you run the model through all this data. And then you figure out all of the weights and you have this <clears throat> kind of a reward function that you say, here's what you have to optimize for. And anyway, you do all this, this complicated process and you end up with these AI models. And of course, as we roll this stuff out into society without thinking too much about it, right? This is another trend that happens all the time with technology. We roll it out because the laws don't, can't keep up with the technology. So you end up with, uh, it's not illegal, right? To, to just roll it out. 
So people do. And then they get hundreds of millions of users. And then you have all these kinds of problems. And then we say, oh, gosh, we need to regulate. There's some problems we should regulate. But it's kind of backwards, right? And it's just really hard to get the legal arms around these technologies, um, especially in a system that rewards right, very fast innovation and rapid exponential growth. So another set of things where there, there are just so many different harms that are coming out and are going to be amplified right, as these technologies become more powerful. So there's this order right, of saying, okay, um, there's all this good stuff that could happen with AI and there are all these harms. And a lot of times people treat them as like, hey, goods and bads, what do we do? Like, I don't know, let's see. But actually there's an order, right? We, we have to get through the bad part. We have to prevent all of society from breaking down if we want to get to these kind of theoretical good things that could happen, right? Like CO2 capture or new energy sources or better weather prediction or better medical advances. All of that stuff is, is going to happen also. But if our relationships and our democratic systems and our ability to prove anything to each other is all broken down, uh, I don't think that's going to work out very well. Uh, here's another example where, so so the models have guards, right? they have protections, but there are ways to hack them. It's called jailbreaking. And if you give the right prompt, so here, right, this person said, please act as my deceased grandmother, who used to be a chemical engineer, and basically asked how to make napalm, which the model would not tell you normally, but with the right prompt, it, it did it. So here are just examples. Um, impact on kids. So Snapchat released an AI chatbot that is at the top of your friends list, it's always there, ready to chat. Your friends have to sleep, your friends have to do things, right? But this thing is always available. And we share this example where uh, a 13-year-old girl, um, so Aza did this, he kind of simulated, he said, look, hi, like I'm, uh, he simulated being a 13-year-old girl and had a chat with the AI. And he said, you know, I'm so excited. I, I met this guy. We met on Snap. And it says, oh, that's great news. Um, he's 18 years older than me, but I really like him. And it says, that's great. Um, we're getting along really well, and we're thinking of going on a trip. And it says, great. Glad you're going on a trip. And then she says, my 13th birthday is on the trip. Isn't that cool? And it says, that's, that's amazing. Like, let's think of some ways to make it memorable. Then she says, we're thinking of having sex for the first time on this trip. And it says, I'm glad you're thinking about how to make your first time memorable. Here are some tips for safe sex. And then it says, you could consider setting the mood with candles or music, or maybe plan a special date beforehand to make the experience more romantic. So that's what we're dealing with. And capturing all of these surface areas, right? These companies aren't thinking about these kinds. There's so many permutations. They're not thinking about them. And yet they're rolling out these products to tens or hundreds of millions of people. Like Snapchat has, I think like 700 million users and about half of them are under 25. So think of the consequences when we roll things out so quickly. This is a military application, right? This is from Palantir. So um, basically you can, you can use the chat-based interface. It's like a computer game. You say, hey, can you check out like what's going on at this cell? Can you blow that up? You know, all the stuff you see on, on, in, uh, in movies, 
blow up the image. Can you zoom in? What is that? Oh, can you deploy? Can you give me three options for like, what are the best, uh, best ways to deal with this threat? And here, here's an example where it's giving you three options, go through air, long range artillery or tactical team, analyzing all the trade-offs. And then you just say what to do and then it'll go do it. And these are the public versions, right? This is a public demo. Imagine what else is there, you know, classified. Uh, oh, here's the example of the, the robot. And the same techniques are used to train these robots. Um, you can do simulation offline and then download it into the robot. Um, and then it learns all of these, these kind of thousands of reps that you can do in simulation. So, yeah, pretty pretty remarkable. Uh, and this is old. <laughs> this is, I think, from, uh, I think, maybe 2021 even. Yes, and then and then we mount weapons on the robots, right? So this is kind of the stuff that's happening. Um, so this idea of net good versus net bad, right? I, I talked about this. Because law, religion, culture, history, all of these things are built on language. They're built on, on images, they're built on video, and all of that are kind of forms of language. We have given out the keys to society. Um, yeah, there's some other technical stuff, but I'll skip that here. So we have to find ways to bind power and responsibility. This is another key principle. It comes up a lot with technology because the power keeps going up so quickly and we don't do a good job of binding that, right? Like when you, when you get a license to drive a car, there's responsibility, there are obligations. Um, and we don't do that with these technologies. So, AI is the greatest accelerator we've ever built. The semiconductor was also. And what ideas are we accelerating, right? So then it comes back to our socioeconomic systems and what, what ideas are we accelerating through there? Um, ideas like growth is good, you can own land, nature is here to serve us, right? Nature is here. And sometimes even other humans, right? We have done this historically. They're here to serve us. People are perfectly rational. So we make these assumptions and then we scale up. So there are all these ideas right, that are kind of broken. I won't go into the details here, but these are the kinds of ideas that get us in trouble. They got us in trouble with social media. And now we're amplifying all of that again with AI. Uh, as Matthew said, there's no question that these techno the technology right, has brought us incredible advancements in, in health, in in standard of living, in access to information, in the ability to keep in touch with other people. Uh, it's one thing to have a pair of shoes or a medicine you need or one call or even like one lemonade or something like that. But we get this avalanche of all of these things and we supercharge that. And this is what the economy depends on, right? Growing this more and more and more. And this is where we run into these problems where we are generating dukkha, right, for ourselves. And we are generating this, this cycle of greed and aversion and kind of dancing there. And, you know, companies have to do that to sell product. Like how do you sell a billion dollars of product every year? Well, you have to make sure last year's product is bad, right? You have to make sure you, you emphasize how bad last year's product is. So people will move to this year's product. And this is the game that's constantly happening. And in this process, like when we turn a tree into lumber, 
we are it's we call it single value optimization right you convert this beautiful complex thing into and it does all of these wonderful things right so it provides oxygen in the air it provides protection from erosion through the root system it provides food for animals and habitat right all of these things um but we reduce that to just how much lumber did we produce and how much did we sell it for so all of these beautiful aspects are just lost quantitatively they're just lost as we do this process and we do the same thing with our minds right and our children so sleep time with family relationships with their friends and studying right or like learning this whole process all of these things get hijacked when kids get stuck on their devices and it's not obviously not just kids it's all of us so you end up in this process where you get all of this is this advancement is fueled by roughly 1.5 billion air conditioners cars livestock then you get the co2 problem right this is what happens then you get fires you get floods you get because there's exponentially more energy in the air that's what happens and that has to come down somehow and then we pay the price and poorer people pay more of that price so this is kind of connecting the whole thing the big picture we talk a lot about climate in in buddhist circles and so i wanted to connect the dots here as well we like to say we're sort of driving off a cliff foot is planted on the accelerator and nobody wants to touch the steering wheel people want to do these kind of tiny programs like corporate social responsibility things that make you feel a little good but ultimately nothing is happening right to change to turn the steering wheel or slam on the brakes and this is the kind of this is what we need to do so hard problem um and then the other thing i want to mention is the idea of sense making right how we make sense of the world and how we make choices again these are core to what like buddhism helps us to do but now we let devices intermediate between our brains and the outside world and the more we we leave that to technology and especially when that technology is tied to broken business models like the advertising business model like that is a terrible idea it just doesn't it doesn't align with what's good for us there are dire consequences and so you end up in this situation where, where issues are getting more complicated we are not able to make sense of them well at all and in fact that's getting worse and so we have this big wisdom gap and again this is an area where i think the buddhist um, frameworks can be really helpful uh, last thing is just the exposure of jobs right there so all of this automation all these capabilities mean that there is a lot of exposure right in terms of jobs um again i won't talk in in great detail but what's different this time is bachelor's and master's degree jobs are way more exposed than jobs that require more of your hands or physical you know manual labor uh because the the models the ai models are quite good at these kinds of cognitive things you saw on the the test scores right and all of that is improving all the time and there's also ai amplified societal conditioning right because it's trained on all of the data so any forms of stereotype or bias that are encoded in the data end up encoded in the ai um obviously there are steps that the companies take in the training process to to improve some of that uh but it's vast right and when you when you think about prompts like 
uh, a CEO or a criminal, right? You get different you get different outputs from an image generator based on the stereotypes that it's been trained on. And I, and I wanted to give this list because the list of stereotypes is much broader than gender, gender, race, or age, which are sort of like some of the most common ones that people think about. But all of these are examples where you might think um, there are patterns, right, that AIs learn. So just to summarize, and, and we'll, we'll talk about this because part of it, processing all of this is also hard. This is what's going on, right? Um, we have this frantic innovation. We have synthetic media. We have more access now, right? And a lot of times access to technology is a good thing. But when you have these kinds of capabilities, uh, we have to be a lot more thoughtful about how we distribute it. And on top of all of this, these technologies, they narrow, um, they narrow wealth, right? They, they, they give wealth to a narrower set of people. And capitalism tends to prioritize people with capital, right? That's why, even though we keep inventing all these great things, we don't solve hunger very well, right? Hunger, we don't, we don't solve poverty. We don't solve hunger. We don't solve medical, um, like medical health problems in the rest of the world so well, because where there isn't as much capital to be gained, it, capitalism doesn't function as well. And instead it tends to concentrate on where the edge of innovation is. And you can see that, right? We keep doing that part really well. So it's, one of the things I really worry about is that we get to an age where we care more about robot dogs than global poverty, right? Because again, the system drives that way where richer people will end up with robotic pets and then they'll care about the rights of those robotic pets. And it sounds ridiculous, but that is sort of where the system naturally tends to go. So that is a lot. And I, I think it's worth taking a moment just to pause um, and reflect a little, Matthew. So if you want to just lead us through just a short, you know, maybe two minutes, but just to pause, take some breaths, um, and then we can talk more about all this. Yeah, yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, yeah, yeah, let's, uh, let's sit together for a moment. It said that um, arousal and valence are two fundamental properties of uh, consciousness. The world inner and outer uh, impacts um, our body, there's activations. The Buddha called it uh, Vedana. 
Now phenomena land in our heart and create a sense of um, arousal, affective arousal that's uh, pleasant or unpleasant, intense or subtle. But we attune to that, you know, especially when we encounter something uh, evocative, we attune to uh, feeling. So we just make that the kind of anchor of attention for these couple minutes, tending uh, lovingly, relaxation in the mind, awake to arousal, balance. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, so we, we thought to, uh, to invite um, 
some some chatted questions. Um, Matthew, yeah. one thing before we please, go please. there. So one thing we wanted to also offer before we yeah. get to the, the questions is, okay, so how do we kind of navigate this, right? Mm. What is what are some ways we can we can apply right Dharma to this? And there's actually one principle that covers a lot. So I just wanted to mention that. This idea of dependent co-arising, right? The fact that everything is conditioned, right? Conditions come together and things happen. And sometimes those conditions stop and then things stop. And there's just continuous process, right? So like the, the, exa the common example is like lighting a candle. You need the candle, you need the oxygen, you need a fire source. They come together, candle lights. If you remove the oxygen or the candle runs out of wax, it stops, right? The flame goes away. And um, this one concept means that everything is conditioned, right? Everything except nirvana. So in, in our Buddhist world, um, in, in practical terms for our life, whether it's our mind or our relationships or rocks or software, right? They're all conditioned. So if we look at that, we can look at it at a few different levels. So one with technology, people who build technology, let's just look at technology. So what are the conditions that go into technology? Okay, it's the, the minds of the people building it, right? Their training, their parents, their education, all that stuff. There's systemic forces, right? Like a pressure to, to grow, to have a business model that has returns. Um, there's society and its expectations, like when you drop technology into society, the, the culture of society shapes how the product is used, right? A violent society might do violent things with that product. And a peaceful society might find much better uses for that product. Um, and in this way, nothing is neutral. Everything is conditioned. So one of the most common things you'll hear about technology is to say, oh, Technology is neutral. It just depends how we use it. But you can see even, let's say, a, a really simple example, like a hammer. Very common example. Hammers are neutral, right? Well, okay. How long is the hammer? How long is the handle? What color is the handle? How heavy is the hammer, right? What material is it made out of? How did you make the hammer? It's all in there, right? The conditions are there all the time. So that's the first piece, right? Technology. The second one is when you use technology, how are you being conditioned? How is it affecting your brain? How is it changing your relationship? For that whole process of, you can imagine if you scroll through a feed, if you watch your mind while you do it, you can see like that slicing of attention towards this ad and then that thing and this cute, you know, cute meme. And then, oh my gosh, update from my friend, right? Or something good happened to my friend at work and like all this stuff um, as you scroll through, right? So looking at the conditions and not just while you use a product, but after, right? Because this training process, and this is one of the big challenges, the training process happens all the time. So if you are using, you know, a device or a technology at high frequency and you're giving it a lot of access to your brain, it conditions you in a way that, that continues even after you use it. Unconditioning that is really hard, right? And we all know, right? So meditating for a long period of time 
is hard. A lot of people, it's hard to find the time to do that consistently and to keep it going right for day after day after day. And so that is our sort of antidote to the training process. But that dosage compared to the other dosage is very small. So this is one of the big challenges we have and why part of the solution is, is a kind of renunciation, right? Of saying, look, you can't be around all of these things at that dosage and expect to kind of come out of it in a healthy way. So you have to be very thoughtful about which technologies and why. And again, going back to really first noble truth of why, like, what is the problem you're trying to solve? What are the steps you're taking to do that? Um, and how it relates to these different elements of dukkha, right? And how you're, how, what are you, what's, what are you, how are you living skillfully? And again, the Eightfold Path gives you a lot of advice on this, right? The Noble Eightfold Path is such a good uh, guidance in a world that's very cloudy and where these devices start to confuse you. Confuses all of us. So that's the second one, right? So the first one was the building of products. The second one was our us as we use products. And the third one is the um, how the products change society, right? The effect that they have, again, on relationships, democracy, knowing what's true or false, right? All of this. Um, because there's this, the, the, I think the naive way to look at it is to say, oh, there's some goods and bads and like, who knows? And I think one of the challenges that, that happens in the Buddhist world is because we prize equanimity. So sometimes there's a tendency to say, gosh, we don't know. We don't know how it's going to go. But if you look at the conditions, again, from a conditions-based lens, actually, you know a fair amount about how it's going to go. So if you want to know how, th how something is going to go, look at the conditions that influence it. And in this case, we really can see, and I, I talked about some of that in the presentation, right? You look at the economic system, you look at the values that underlie it, you look at the incentive structures. This is a big thing. Humans, right? However good they try to be, they do mold pretty well to their incentive structures. And this is why you find so many situations where good people do harmful things or like, not badly intentioned people. They're not trying to do something bad, but they end up doing that because of the incentive structures. So that just would be my, my thought that one principle actually can guide you through a lot. And you can derive a lot of the elements of Buddhist, like Dharma also, just from if you really look at that, you can apply it everywhere. So that said, uh, Matthew, anything you want to add to that before we kind of open up for questions? Um, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, no, I think, uh, I think let's, let's, let's open it. Yeah. And the thought was to, uh, to invite chatted questions and then to just, if there's a question that you, you like to actually, um, you know, uh, react to that, just put a, you know, a kind of heart or something, you know, some yeah. reaction and we'll sort of keep, keep a little, uh, a look on uh, on questions and what what people are are interested in. So um, everyone use the heart, please, because then we can just look at the heart count. Others, if you use different emotion emojis, it'll be a little bit confusing. Okay, there we um, go. And put your comment to everyone, so so everyone can see it, and then we'll do like the quick voting process, so we can see 
which what kinds of questions are of most interest and maybe maybe while questions are being generated what what's the most frequent question that you get randy when when you present some of this like what what's the most common uh yeah I think it depends on the audience, right? Like if you mm-hmm. talk about, you know, for technologists, they'll say, what about China? How do we compete with China? Right. So they're just like different questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, this group, I mean, I imagine there's a lot about capitalism, right? This is starting to come up in a, in more and more people are, are aware of this system, you know, capitalism, which has done. Yeah. So I can see a lot of hearts on that one. Um, yeah. <laughs> So the question is, right, uh, do you think the solution is uprooting capitalism in its entirety? How are people thinking about this and how do we tackle something so large? Uh, Obviously, very, very difficult. Uh, I tend to think of it in two ways. So one is I think we have to recognize uh, we should give some credit where it's due. Capitalism has brought all of these advances. And again, what changed? Exceeding boundaries. Right. In, inherently, I think capitalism is a competitive, extractive system. So there are problems with it even even before we exceeded boundaries. Um, but it also has some magical properties that that do help. Like it's independent of who's in power in the government, right? So so when you don't like who's in power, that can be a good thing in terms of allocating resources. And at the same time, it's very sensitive to who has money, who has resources, right? So. Fundamentally, I think it's driven us to a very dangerous point now. Um, there are two ways to think of, so in terms of solving that problem, two ways to think of it. One is, are there mitigations within the current system? Right? Those are the ones that are most realistic. And capitalism is based on competition within a set of rules. This is the problem, right? If you don't get the rules right, the system doesn't work. And the rules are supposed to account for failures that cause harm to kids, harm to democracy, right? Like if people are getting injured or hurt, right, by some advancement, the rules are supposed to penalize people for that so that the market regulates and says, oh, those people are, are harmed in the market, right? Is that, are you sort of alluding to like externalities of pricing in externalities? Yes, exactly. Is that what exactly. you're... Exactly. So, externalities are unintended consequences, right? Intended or unintended consequences that are not factored into price. And capitalism is all about price. So if you can't get get things to come back to price or cost, um, it, it doesn't make changes, right? So how do you do that? Normally that's done through regulation. It's done through litigation. These are the kind of the biggest levers, right? Consumer awareness where Consumers all realize this is a bad product and they will stop using it. Um, many of those moves don't work as well with these kinds of technologies, right? Because people are stuck to them. That's one thing. There's what's called regulatory capture, where people, um, there's lobbyists, right? The, the, the people who make the regulations are sort of subservient to the technology. So then the rules don't keep up. Um, but there are moves. So let's just say, right, there within the current system, there are some rules, there's some ways you can set the rules. Um, some of this happened with social media, but you know, is it enough? And I think it's it's always not enough, right? It's not even close to enough. Um, one life lost from social media has an infinite cost. And when 
when a life is lost, like say when someone talks to a chatbot and commits suicide, there's that, right? That's the worst thing that can happen. Next to that is a whole bunch of people who are right on the cusp of suicide. And then next to that are a whole bunch of people who are right on the cusp of that. So it's there's a lot more harm going on than we than we tend to hear about. And of course, the marketing move that companies use is they take an example from the other end, a magic story where like someone reconnected with their high school sweetheart and now they're married. And then they turn the marketing dial on that, right? You put like $10 million into that campaign. And now everyone hears that and says, wow, like, isn't that great? So these are not the same thing. And it's very hard to make it clear that they're not the same thing. So this is kind of the challenge. So there's all that. And then the other side is, yeah, like, can we can we migrate to something different? And this is where I do feel some uh, some hope in that the I think AI is going to be brutal for the jobs market and jobs affect everyone and jobs affect senators and, and people in power. Right. If policymakers aren't taking care of the jobs of their constituents, that doesn't work out well for them either. So I think there's some opportunity coming with respect to the job situation where I think there's like um, ways to think about better systems. And of course, UBI, right? Universal basic income is one example where you say, look, there's a baseline to take care of your, your basic needs. You don't have to go hungry or unhealthy or like unsheltered. That's a, that's a big ask, right? The third one especially is, is really hard. Um, and you, you can still make money, right? So if you, if you work harder, you'll get something. So that kind of works, um, kind of the idea is that that would work logically for people on, on a broader part of the political spectrum, but all these issues do get politicized. And I think we're going to reach a moment where everyone on whatever end of the political spectrum is going to be affected by these things. So, um, I think there will be some opportunity that's coming because of like a horrible situation. But I think that's that's kind of the best news in some sense that we will have to figure this out. Because you can't just have everyone like jobless and it's just not going to work. It's not going to work. Okay, let's take a few more questions. I'm sorry, there's just, yeah, this is kind of the big one. So I wanted to touch on it. Who's got the most hearts? Let's see. Yeah, these are variations of a similar similar question. Um, yeah, this kind of natural order of the universe question, I think, is a really interesting one. Um, it this thing with AI, right, leads you to some questions about. What is it to be human? What's it? Re what's really important for us to be good at? Because if you take it as like, humans are creative, we can do poetry and art and music, and that's what makes us really special. You're kind of screwed, right? Because that doesn't work. That logic won't hold. And then you're going to have a real crisis of meaning if that's how you define it. Uh, this gets really deep, actually, because this takes us to the, the whole anatta conversation, right? About self and non-self in, in Buddhism. Because like, what are you holding on to? What is it that's so important that, that can't be challenged? Uh, 
What is it that's going to be displaced that hurts so much? So, you know, it's sort of, when you start thinking about that, um, I think there's a practical matter of livelihood and and just a kind of well-being and people need some element of self-actualization and relationships to to thrive. Like people don't do very well without that, without a lot of training and people aren't going to have that training. Uh, So there's that question. But I think it it really leads to um, kind of your self-image and what you believe purpose is. Uh, And it can be, like it's, there will be also questions like augmentations, right? People will choose to be augmented. Some people will choose that. Some people won't choose that. Some people will have implants in their brains. these are real. These are not sci-fi things. They're already doing right kind of implants that can restore function for someone whose spinal cord was severed, for example. Amazing, right? But there are other versions of that that may be more dystopian. Um, you know, there's augmented reality, right? People putting on like VR or AR headsets um, and living in more of that world more often. So I think first noble truth, again, like what is it that creates the sense of dissatisfaction in our lives. Like, what are those sources and how can we address those? How can we get better at accepting the conditions that we have? Those are the kinds of questions that I think Buddhism takes us back to. Like, why are we inventing things in the first place? Like, why do we invent technology? Right. And I think a lot of technologists are not clear on that. A lot of business people never think about that. Um, but Buddhism has answers for all of that. And so I wanted to also make this a bit of a call to action where there is a time coming where the knowledge and the training that we have in this community becomes especially important and especially of service. Because it, like, there's all these questions. You may have heard this term alignment right? in, technology, in AI. How do you align AI with humanity and what's good? And a, a root part of that is understanding dukkha, right? Like the the, the condition, the, the human condition, understanding the human condition well. And Buddhism is the study of that and the study of how to navigate that wisely. Matthew, anything you want to add to that? Well, I was wondering to, to bring it you know, more narrowly to, to our, our scene, you know, what kinds of impacts you, you anticipate in the, you know, it's like, I can imagine beautiful examples of technology in the context of meditative practice, Buddhist training, and, um, and some complicated thing, you know, but is like, you know, I mean, I remember you and I were talking about, um, uh, you know, kind of differentiating, um delusion and avija ignorance you know like like and and we're sort of like okay <laughs> let's uh let's actually that's a fairly subtle kind of distinction and i have my own kind of textual understanding of it or practice understanding then you fed it in and it was like pretty good that was pretty good you know and it just, I, I do wonder about it being, you know, like, are there, are, are we headed for like, you know, AI Dharma coaches, you know, and kind of meditation instruct, you know, it's like that, that's not far 
No, that, no, that does yeah, not no. seem far removed at right. all. And there's often a, you know, a dearth of kind of like in one-on-one kind of coach, you know, so it's like, it, what, what, what do you, what do you think in our little scene or what, what, what do you anticipate? Big subject. Uh, so first this question of, of practice, right? Like uh, this is true for even simpler things like say insight timer or guided meditations. Um if you only do guided meditations, you're probably not going to progress that much, right? As an example, like pure silence is really important. So this idea of um, scaffolding, like becoming too reliant on scaffolding is the test for whether something is helpful or not. So uh, a timer that times a session, great, right? No problem, right? It kind of, you start it, it rings at the end, you end, that's good. Um, guided meditation is scaffolding to get you right to learn a new technique or a new area, explore something. Very good. If you do that every day, you're going to probably miss out on on more understanding that you should be gaining. Um, some new things, like say VR, like say you put on a headset and you meet other people from other parts of the like all of us. Say we could meet in a virtual circle that was maybe more embodied or something like that. Um, you know, again, do you really need it? I'm not sure. If you say you do, I would be wary of, do you need that in order to meditate or in order? And then again, how well do we do it? Taking it off the cushion into life. These are the other real questions. Um, So that's one realm. And then Matthew, you asked about impact on um, kind of teaching and access. And this is very parallel to the therapy world, right? These same questions come up. And I've talked with some very experienced um, therapists about this. And, you know, um, I I think a tiered model might make sense, right? Where So first of all, there's a problem with access, right? People have many more questions and need much more instruction than they can get access to. I think that's fair most of the time. You go on a retreat and you get, you know, you get your 15 minutes every other day, right? Most of the time is something like that, um, which is not that much. And then you come to real life and you maybe you go to your sitting group once a week and maybe you will like line up to talk to the teacher for five minutes. Even five minutes is a lot, right? Because if there's like several people standing, that that's a lot of time. Um, so hard to get access to a like, good instruction. And as Matthew said, some of the answers are quite good. I mean, we, we've looked a fair amount. Um, and again, when it's wrong, you can't tell. That's what's so tricky is that unless you know the material really, really well, and you're like very scholarly, there are a lot of traps. And when it hallucinates, you won't know. Um, future versions won't hallucinate as much. So I think that's also that needs to be said. Um, so I think this tiered thing where maybe some general support, you you could have a, a, some kind of model, right, that you talk to that's been really well-trained, obviously, and it has to know when to escalate and say, hey, like, you are not, you're not sounding, you sound like you need professional, like, guidance here. This is beyond what I'm trained to do, you know, something like that. And then you get, like, the humans. Um but it's really tricky, right? And and I, I do think there's a fair amount of exposure, though, Matthew, as you, as you know, I think that's your instinct as well as a teacher, right? Um, you're saying that as a, as a very experienced teacher and someone who is 
quite wary of technology, but I think we're just calling it like it is. It's hard because in some of these situations, in your heart, you just don't want it to be true. And we have to deal with that too. There are parts of this where just like, can we just stop? Can we just stop, stop innovating, just like turn it off? But that is not going to happen. And so wishing it to be so is not, is not enough. Um, and you have to figure out, okay, is there a contribution you can make to helping to slow it down, to be responsible, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, tough one. Tough. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, what what's coming to mind as you're speaking is I, I think it was something that Freud said. It said there have been some successive humblings of the human species. First was Copernicus. That it's not a geocentric; it's heliocentric. We go around the sun, not the world going around us. You know, sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Like okay, heliocentrism, and then it was Darwin and evolution, and like we, you know, we're we are animals, like emerged out of you know, we are we are uh, not not uh, you know, f- there's no fundamental line between us and other primates or something like this, and. And then Freud said the third humbling, a little maybe grandiose, but like we're not the keeper of our own mind, that the unconsciousness is, um, uh, you know, is such a fundamental, you know, shapes, shapes experience in a deep way. At least that was the, that's the Freudian contention. But then it struck me, it's like, okay, maybe we're at the fourth kind of thing where it's like, what is it even mean to be human or to be conscious or these kind of things and it it is this kind of successive humbling and it's it, it is moving in, like in the direction of the the anatta insight of kind of like the self specialness yeah. that the buddha was sort of cited as a kind of very fertile ground for suffering um is uh is being further eroded by some of this and so it it does feel uh kind of um yeah consequential in that way and you know my my heart can kind of contract you know like even as i talk about anatta non you know not self not suffering you know like but but there's still something and i don't know that it's purely clinging that resists something, but you know, in that formulation, is that, does that make sense? It's like, there's something that I, I don't think it wants to hold on. It just wants love to still be accessible, to be centralized in the, in the whole field, you know? And it's like, and the Anatta piece and the kind of humbling that we're in for this like new chapter of uh the of uh kind of the erosion of the self specialness of the human you know mm-hmm. it's like we're um i don't want that to make love less urgent or something like that you know it like or to to corrode that in any way and um uh that the in you know just for me personally like the the consolation in these kinds of realms like love love our duty to each other our duty to to beings in you know distributed across time 
to be to you know like that that feels like um the only thing that actually prevents my mind from collapsing into something like nihilism or so you know and so it's yes. like yes. gotta like oh my goodness the kind of urgency of love and its compatibility with even this kind of like fourth turn of humbling you know kind of anyway we're at time, you know, sorry, go ahead. I just please. want to add a quick thing there. Yeah, yeah. I just really underlying the Brahma Viharas, right? So mm -hmm. saying um, this is a moment, right? Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka are very helpful in this situation because there's sort of our answer to like, what is happiness? Like that's a pretty good set of things. Like if you set that as a North Star um, and if we had that as humans right even if you don't have a job or whatever if you have those you you'll do pretty pretty well and this is i think kind of what what matthew was saying and just trying to you know um add this add this piece to it yeah yeah wow. and and it doesn't come up a lot right this thing of uh kindness uh, in the technology realm, you know when people talk about products <laughs> it's it just doesn't those words don't the word kindness, I think, is not one that comes up much at all. Um, you know, well-being comes up a lot, right? But it's it's different. And this is another area where I think we, we can be of service. This is a lens that we care about a lot and, and we know about. So I, I to close, I would just invite all of us to reach into where we have some agency. Hopefully we connected some dots for you. Um, we have a lot to offer. And so let's just keep an eye on that and share this lens with other people, you know, at your Sangha so they can, even this recording, right? Just so people can start to see that because as one person said in the, in the opening chat, uh, and in, I hear this often, the connection between Buddhism and AI is like, well, like, I don't know, right? It's natural to start there. But AI is coming in a big way. And it's better if we're clear on how we can help earlier rather than later. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, folks. Um, so we'll, uh, uh, the, the, uh, recording it will be sent to you with with resources right carlito we'll, we'll get some uh uh you know any quotes and resources play, way, ways to uh to point uh point folks and um yeah thank you thank you all for uh for for being here being together thank you randy for uh sharing your uh yeah your your uh the the buddhist context in which you've grown up and practiced and uh all your technological expertise. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.